let me preface this morning's study by acknowledging the reality that the subjects that Jesus addresses in Matthew 7 are so deeply rich that we could spend, admittedly, weeks camping out on this spot in order to mine all the gold that's there. We're not going to do that. In actuality, my intention is to cover the entirety of Matthew chapter 7 over the course of the next 50 or so minutes. To do this, my strategy, I'm going to be honest, very forthcoming, I'm just going to teach the text so that you understand the text. And I'm going to trust, I'm going to believe that the Holy Spirit can take what the text is saying and He can apply it into your individual life as He knows how to do best. I'm not going to go all the way out. I'm also going to trust that really the few brim that I pull out of the water this morning might entice you sometime later this week to throw your lure into deeper waters in search of catfish. All the way back in Matthew 4 verse 23, in a few verses summarizing a year-long season of ministry in the heavily populated region that surrounded the Sea of Galilee, we read that Jesus went about the Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. While beginning with chapter 8, Matthew will begin to provide us example after example after example of what Jesus' healing ministry looked like practically over the course of this year. He first, Matthew, our author, provides us, the reader, a taste of the kind of material a typical sermon of Jesus would have included during this, this teaching circuit. Though it's true that there is a broad train of thought, kind of woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It is also evident on occasion that Jesus will pivot very hard from one subject to another. As we're going to see, a great example of this is an abrupt transition that Jesus makes from a discussion about worry at the close of the previous chapter, chapter 6, to now a new subject he introduces with chapter 7. So let's dive right in. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If we're honest this morning, without a question, Matthew 7 verse 1 is probably the most quoted verse in the Bible by pagans who love to use Jesus' words to do two things. Condemn Christians for being judgmental and justify their own sinful choices and behaviors. In fact, they'll even use this verse to advocate that Jesus was kind of presenting a universal acceptance of, of kind of a laissez-faire a belief, a, a, a laid-back lifestyle, and anything goes belief system. Now, the problem with this approach, this way of, of interpreting this first verse, is really twofold. First, it discounts the entirety of what the Bible says on the subject of judging, and secondly, it, it really intentionally twists what Jesus is saying. Jesus was not prohibiting judgment. For example, in John chapter 7, verse 24, so anytime someone wants to say, judge not lest you be judged, you can just say, well, I mean, Jesus also exhorted me not to judge according to appearance, so I shouldn't do that, but to judge with a righteous judgment. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul will write to the church located there in Corinth. He says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, 
because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Understand, if Jesus was prohibiting, as the skeptics will say, his disciples from making judgments in this first verse, then, well, verse 2 kind of provides an immediate contradiction, doesn't it? In fact, later in the sermon, the section regarding how we're to address false teachers and how they can be identified, verses 15 and 20, wouldn't make any sense at all. Instead of a sweeping prohibition against Christians making judgments, it seems that Jesus is cautioning us, cautioning the disciples, regarding the way in which we judge others. Look again, he says, For with judgment you judge, you will be judged. And then he adds, With the measure you use, or literally the standard that you use to administer a judgment, it will be measured back to you. Be careful. Christian, Jesus is telling us that we as his disciples, we shouldn't possess a judgmental attitude. Nor should we possess a critical spirit towards others. Now, it is true, at times, we are in situations where we must make judgments about what's true and what's false, about things that are right and wrong. And yet, whenever these scenarios happen to present themselves in your life, you need, as with me, to be cautious, judicious, and in the end, gracious in the way that we administer a judgment. <laughs> this week, BabylonBee.com posted a satirical article relevant to this topic. I, I thought it was funny. The, the article is titled, Christian Passes Judgment on Other Christians for Being Too Judgmental. Here's the article. I'll read you the beginning. In an Instagram story posted earlier this week, local believer James Willerson ripped into his fellow Christians for being way too judgmental, pronouncing a harsh judgment upon them for how they judge other Christians. The man blasted other believers for blasting other believers, passing judgment on other Christians as he called them to just love each other and not pass judgment on people. <laughs> judge not, lest you be judged. It's a fact that in our culture, something has happened that, that has led to some wrong conclusions. Like There has been this false tethering together of two ideas. The idea that loving a person means that you also have to have or demonstrate a blanketed acceptance of that person, whether it's their identity or their behaviors. That love and acceptance are, are like you can't break the two. You can't have one with the other. The problem with that is that the Bible is absolutely clear that you can indeed love a person truly and at the same time take umbrage with who they are and even the things they might be doing. Now, if you need an example of that in practice, look no further than God. In Romans 5, verse 8, we read that God demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved us in a way that, that was expressed through the, the sacrifice of His only begotten Son. Did He accept our identity? No, He came to save us, to change us, to transform us. Did He accept who, what we were doing? No, not at all. His love rejected those things 
and created a better way. Friend, love wins. Love wins. When the people that we disagree with cannot deny our love for them. That's when love wins. Jesus now illustrates this, this, this point in kind of a comical way. Verse 3, he says, And why do you look at, or, or constantly, why are you constantly beholding the speck, or literally the, the wooden splinter, in your brother's eye, but do not consider, or you're not even perceiving, the plank or the wooden log in your own eye? Again, it's kind of the absurdity in what Jesus is describing that intends to drive home his point. He continues, he says, Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, but look, you have a plank sticking out of your own. You know, the intention might have been noble, but from the perspective, imagine, of the person with the speck in their eye, this proposal of a person with this giant plank sticking out of theirs coming to help them, it's completely ludicrous. It's silly. Everyone in the audience would have been laughing at the point that Jesus is making. And then, he, and then he pivots. He says, hypocrite. Hypocrite. Basically, if you were really genuine about other people and caring for other people, you'd, he says, first remove the plank from your own eye. And then you can see clearly in order to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, the truth, I think we can agree the chronically judgmental, cynical, critical person. You know, they tend to be far more focused on other people's sin than they are of their own. Isn't that true? To such a person, what is Jesus saying? Is, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, you look stupid. Everybody can see it. You look silly. And your intentions are obvious. Like, you go around pointing out the shortcomings of everyone else. Why? In order to distract, to deflect from your own shortcomings. We all see it. You look ridiculous. Deal with yourself. As Christians, understand there's nothing wrong with helping a brother remove a speck from their eye. As long as your primary focus is dealing with your, your own sin first. Well, in this antidote, Jesus appears to be focusing, I don't know if you picked up on the word, but the relationship we have between brothers within the fold, Christians. He now pivots in the next section to our interactions with, with what I believe to be unbelievers. Let's read it. Verse 6. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Now that's not D-A-W-G. It's not the dogs. Dogs. And in your mind and within our culture, you have a lot of like, Really good thoughts at that moment with the word dog. My dog. I love my dog. You would not have had that reaction in the first century. Dogs were not domesticated house animals. They were undomesticated wild scavengers. Dogs. It's a negative. Nor, Jesus says, cast your pearls or your wisdom. Pearls of wisdom. That's where we get this phrase. Before swine. Now, pigs according to the law, because they ate anything and everything they could find, they were considered to be unclean. Jesus cautions these things. He says, lest they trample them, what is holy in your pearls, under their feet, and turn and tear you into pieces. As simply put, Jesus encourages his disciples to use discernment 
with regards to those we give what is holy or to whom we cast our pearls. Be careful, Jesus said. Use some discernment. You know, tragically, and I, and I do say that tragically, it is tragic that there are people in this world, and you've run across them, I'm sure, who really don't want anything to do with Jesus. They really don't want anything to do with Jesus, and they don't care about what you have to say about him. They don't like Jesus. They don't like the people that follow Jesus. They don't want anything to do with it. In fact, sometimes they're not even just resistant to Christ. They're hostile to Christ and those that follow him. I have found that when I know, I see someone, they're doing something, I know where it, where it leads, I know how it lands, I know what results, but I also know they don't want to hear from me at all. You know those people. What Jesus is cautioning here is, like, in that situation, it's just better to be silent and hold back your counsel for someone that actually wants it. The Lord will deal with them. Now, in line with what Jesus is saying, let me share with you a proverb, Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8. It fits within this, and it's true. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Verse 7, ask, ask. The verb tense here is, is ask and keep asking continually ask and it will be given to you seek again continue to seek and you will find knock continue to knock and it will be opened to you for everyone and again the audience here is his disciples who asks receives and again the verb tense is continues to receive and he who seeks will continue to find and him who knocks, it will be continually opened. Now, there is obviously an application within these verses to the flow of the sermon and our need of wisdom when it comes to navigating human relationships, whether it be with the unbeliever or our brothers. But this does seem to be, at least within context, another one of these pivots that Jesus makes back to an earlier topic in the sermon, the topic of prayer. Obviously, this exhortation to keep asking, seeking, and knocking, it implies the exhortation centers on a persistence. Like, be persistent with your prayers. You're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking. Don't just once and then just bail, parachute out. Keep going. Jesus isn't annoyed. God's not annoyed. Ask, seek, knock. You know, the, 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 the activity of this persistence what it does is it describes, Jesus is describing, the, the appropriate attitude of the petitioner. That said, I, I should point out, do you notice that Jesus never specifies within the text what it is we're to be asking or seeking or, or knocking for? Now, you could argue that he's already addressed the substance of our prayer back with the Lord's Prayer earlier in, in, in the message, but he leaves us, I think, intentionally open-ended. He just says, ask and seek and not keep doing this. Be persistent in this. Continuing. He now places our approach into the context of our heavenly father. He says, or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. You know, not only is Jesus here leaving the essence, the subject of our prayer open-ended, but even the promise inherent, did you also notice that it's, it's a bit oblivious as well? He's saying continually ask, you'll be continually receiving. Doesn't specify what it is, right? Not what you're asking or what you're receiving. He says if you're continually seeking, you'll be continually discovering. If you're continually knocking, doors of revelation will be constantly opening. Again, Jesus isn't interested in what we receive, what we discover, what's open. But then he gets to our Heavenly Father. And his point here in verse 9, he says, No human father would ever treat a son or a daughter in such a way. If, if, if you're asking for bread, he's not going to, no father would give him a stone. If he's asking for a fish, you wouldn't give that child a serpent, probably more accurately, a water serpent. Again, this is a fishing community. If you then, so here's his conclusion, being evil, he's not saying that in kind of a negative, he's saying you're fallen, you're broken, you're sinful. But if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, so multiply it and multiply it accordingly, will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? What is clear about this section of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus' focus is the attitude behind our prayer, and it's not necessarily the substance. So, in response to continually asking, seeking, knocking, Jesus guarantees that that attitude will manifest in his disciples receiving, discovering, and having doors open. doesn't specify the asking or the receiving. Now, it's true. <laughs> it may not be the things you are asking for, but you will receive the things you need. It might not be the things that you're really seeking, but you'll receive, you'll discover the things that God knows you really need to discover. You might be knocking on doors, unaware of what's on the other side. And yet Jesus is saying, the doors will be open because your Father's got it all under control. Now, if that kind of gives you hesitancy, asking but, but getting, and those two things maybe having a disconnect, Jesus' challenge to you is simple. Can you trust that your Heavenly Father will give you what you need? That you'll discover. Here's the attitude of the petitioner. God's promising you will receive. I'm not going to specify either. You just have to trust that God's got it all under control. And will you? Verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, or more accurately, this is, this is the law and the prophets summarized. A summary statement. You know, across religious persuasions that date back to the beginning of time, and with regard to cultural norms that have existed across the globe, there is a universal ethic you'll find known as the Golden Rule. And the Golden Rule states, with some variety across cultures, it encourages people not to treat others in ways that you would not like to be treated. It's a pretty good ethic. What makes Jesus' statement in this verse so radical and in a lot of ways revolutionary, is that he doesn't state the golden rule as, it's, as it was always known. Instead, he turns, he transitions what was a negative admonition into a positive one. Like instead of our actions towards other people being guarded by a, a negative reciprocation, 
Jesus encourages his disciples to be proactive. It's not treat others or do not treat others in the ways that you would not like to be treated. It's, it's whatever you want men to do, do to them. Be proactive. Jesus is basically saying, treat people the way that you want to be treated. It's not just don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. Treat them actively the way that you want to be treated. There's all kinds of applications for this. Again, this is where I trust the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life according to whatever it is that's going on in your life right now because I think it is applicable. But I will, I will add, I will say in my preparations, Pastor David Guzik applies this concept to church life in a way that I found to be really appropriate and relevant. You know, it's a shame, but so often families will end up leaving the church. And they'll do so claiming that they were having a hard time making friends. That's what they'll say. Ironically, once you kind of challenge that, you'll discover that they, yes, were having a hard time making friends, but they weren't doing anything to be friendly, which is a problem. You'll hear people say, well, Pastor Zach, we come to church and like there are a few people that talk to us. Okay, well, how many people did you go up to and talk to? Well, I don't know. know. Oh, it's kind of awkward when you're sitting over there being being a creep. Not talking to anyone. They walk up and talk to you. Well, maybe they just want to be left alone. I don't know. Well, I was never invited to go to lunch after the church service. Well, good grief, it's not like there's a plan to any of this. Did anyone, did, like, did you ever invite anyone else to go to church, like, lunch with you after church? Like, it was such a big, I'll go with you. None of the, none of the ladies invited me and the little snot nose to go to the park for a play date. Well, did, did you ever call up another mom in the church and invite them to go to the park for a play date? No. Wait a second. The golden rule, Jesus' twist, rings true, doesn't it? Treat people at church the way that you want to be treated at church. If you want friends, be friendly. If you want to hang out, invite. Don't put the burden on someone else. For them to be friends with you, you be friends with them. Verse 13. There's so much more I could say about that, but I should move on. Enter, the understood you, you enter by the narrow gate. It's an interesting word, the narrow gate. In Greek, it was what was known as the wicket gate. Not a wicked, the wicket, wicket gate, which you've, you've seen before. A large door, you have a large door with a little door in the door. And, and kind of our culture, imagine a doggy door, you know, a door and a door. It's a little door, a narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad or spacious is the way that leads to destruction. And this word destruction in the Greek means destruction utter ruin Jesus adds and there are many who go in by it and why well he answers the rhetorical question he says because narrow is the gate it's tight it's hard to get through it's difficult 
is the way. The way it's, it's pressed upon, it's contracted. Because the, the, the narrow is the gate, difficult the way, which leads to life. And, and there's a definite article between life, the life, not any life, the life. He's speaking about everlasting, eternal life. And there are few who find it. And what is probably another kind of an abrupt change in topics, Jesus here addresses matters of eternal life and death. And he does it in an interesting way. He, he does it by establishing a contrast between two gates, two crowds, two ways, and two destinies. You know, on one side of the equation, Jesus describes a wide gate that provides many entry to a broad way that leads in destruction. It's one contrast. On the other side, Jesus describes a narrow gate that provides few entry to a difficult way that leads to life. Now, let's unwrap the idea. First and foremost, Jesus is telling us without question that there are only two destinies for all of mankind. There are only two final destinations in the end of it all. There is destruction or hell, and there is life, heaven. Secondly, Jesus affirms that because the way to eternal life is much more difficult than the broad way to destruction, in the end, one path is trafficked by many, while the other, and it's a sad admission, but it's taken by just a few. Lastly, with all of that in mind, Jesus stresses the importance of choosing the right gate, the right gate to enter. Why? Because it's through that gate that a person will set themselves on a path that will end in a destination. Friend, where you ultimately end up will always be determined by the gate you enter and the path that you take. And if there's any question regarding the identity of the narrow gate, Jesus, and probably what was in addition to this sermon, he says in John 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door, the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Friend, Jesus has promised three things about the decision to follow him. Three things that will happen. It's a promise, a guarantee. If and when you decide to embark on a journey through the narrow gate, when you decide to follow Jesus, one, the destination's awesome. <laughs> like the destination, it's eternal life. It's heaven. Two, while the destination is awesome, the journey, the path, it's difficult. It's trying. It's hard. Thirdly, your path will set you also against the popular current of a culture that's heading the opposite direction to win. The destination's awesome, the journey's hard, and there are few. Before we move on, there are some who like to take offense to Jesus' claim of exclusivity. Well, what does that mean, Zach? Well, Jesus is making a, a pretty exclusive claim that the only way to God, the only way to heaven is through Him. There is only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, but through me. Some people don't like that. In fact, these folks will argue that Jesus, okay, he might be a way, but he's not the way, as if there aren't other paths. Other, if you're sincere, what about you? Jesus might be a way, but it's just silly to think that he's the only way. Honestly, I'm really not offended that Jesus provided only one way. What amazes me is that he provided any way at all. How silly. I provided you a way, the way. Jesus, well, I, I, I would really like three options. But I gave you a way. Yeah, but, you know, I mean... I like, I like variety. Well, you're a fool. Yeah, because our destiny is a matter of life and death. And there's some consistency in the, in the theme here. He now cautions his disciples, verse 15. He says, beware of, or, or constantly be looking out for, false prophets or counterfeit prophets. These would be men, or even women, who claim to speak for God. They're prophets, a mouthpiece for God, a megaphone, but they're not. They're a counterfeit. They're false. She says, beware of false prophets who come to you. You don't have to, you don't have to go out and look for them. They'll come, they'll find you, and they'll be in sheep's clothing. So they'll look on the outward uh, to be very innocent, but Jesus says inwardly, the part that you can't see, these people are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's interesting, this analogy that Jesus uses of ravenous wolves coming in sheep's clothing. Now, a lot of times you'll hear this passage preached, and, and the mental picture that ends up being painted is, is a wolf out in the field pretending to be a sheep. Not quite the picture that Jesus is painting. You see, in that day, a shepherd, his outer cloak was typically made of of sheepskin and wool. Like in all likelihood, Jesus is saying that these false prophets who claim to be speaking for God, they claim to be looking out for the flock. They're not true shepherds at all. They come in sheep's clothing, they look like shepherds, but inwardly they're wolves. This word ravenous, I like that word, ravenous. It's used only four other times in the New Testament. And in every other instance, this particular Greek word is translated as extortioners. Extortioners. You see, yeah, these men were false prophets. But in a practical sense, as a wolf, what were they doing? They were fleecing the people of their money. I'm going to say that joke again. They were fleecing the people of their money. Get it? Sheep? Fleece? You got it? Come on. Extortioners. It's interesting, though, because Jesus is like, he's telling us that they're going to be false prophets. They're going to find you. They're going to look like they're shepherds, but they're wolves. And they're going to fleece the people. I'll even tell you how. They're extortioners. It'll be about money. 
Friend, any preacher who's trying to extort you out of your money, whether it be through faulty theology, guilt, it's a big one, or even presenting money as, as a way that you can better your position with God. For just $19.95, you and God can be a lot closer today than you were yesterday. If you run across such a person, you can identify them. Say, wait a second. I think you're a wolf. I think you're an extortioner. In fact, I don't think you speak for God, and therefore, Jesus has told me I should avoid you and stay away from you. Today, if you, if you want a better mental picture, a shepherd, a false prophet, a shepherd extorting the people, imagine such an individual sporting a jerry curl, having a southern draw, and possessing thousands of dollars in bathroom stalls. Verse 17. Even so, so he, Jesus is going to build on this idea, even so, Every good tree bears, or is constantly bearing, habitually bringing forth good fruit. And a bad tree, or, or one that's corrupted, it, it bears fruit, but it's bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So this is kind of just a, a, a rule in the natural world, an obvious one. Jesus is now applying to man and, and our spirit, the spiritual world. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down, it's thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, the context here, no doubt, are these prophets. Them are the false prophets. But Jesus is telling his disciples, not just how you can identify evil men. By their fruits, you'll know them. And he's not only making it clear that when it's all said and done, those men will be judged. He says they'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. But in its broader application, there's something for us. Like, never forget that fruit, fruit, is something that naturally manifests. It's naturally yielded from a tree through a natural process. There's a law for this. This is not an accident. All the way back in the creation account, Genesis 1, God established a universal principle that applied to all of the natural world. Whether it be plants or animals or fish or birds, God said he would create something, and he said you could yield, you could multiply, you could replicate each according to its kind. As a result, humans could birth humans, elephants, more elephants, azaleas, additional azaleas. Now, I, I know this concept is, is simple, but a tree. A tree is known to be healthy by the fact that it bears fruit. If it's not bearing fruit, there's something wrong. And that tree can be identified by the fruit that it's yielding or producing. Again, trees cannot manufacture fruit of its choosing. Like an apple tree can't desperately want to create and yield oranges. A tree cannot choose how it wants to identify itself, what it wants to be. A tree's nature is not fluid. You see, a tree, as everything else, it's bound by natural principles. 
that were long established by the creator of the universe. So in applying the concept to us, to the spirit of man, Jesus is telling us that the things that naturally manifest from our lives, fruit, inevitably reveal who we really are. If the fruit is bad, it's rotten, sour, so there's bad things being yielded from our life, it's, it's evidence of something. It's a sign that there's something wrong with the tree. It's dying or it's unhealthy, it's corrupt. But if, if the fruit coming from our lives is good, there are good things manifesting. Well, it's the evidence that the tree, it's healthy, it's operating as it should, it's good. Christian, what you do does not determine who you are. Instead, what you do reveals who you are, just like fruit does with a tree. You see, identity determines behaviors. Actions always manifest from the heart before Christ. You sinned. Why? You were a sinner. <laughs> really good at it. It came naturally. And yet today, righteousness is yielded from your life. How? The same natural process. If I, if I sinned because I was a good sinner, I had, I had a corrupt nature, I was a bad tree, thus I produced bad things before Christ. But then, after Christ, my life is producing good stuff. How is it producing good stuff? Well, righteous things are yielded because Jesus has made me righteous. My nature has been switched. It's been changed. As such, you don't have to work hard to be righteous at that point, do you? Instead, a righteous life works its way out from a righteous dude or a righteous girl. It flows forth. I, I mentioned this at the beginning of, of our series through the Sermon on the Mount, that it's likely that Matthew is providing us kind of summaries. The cliff notes, really. It took us 13 minutes, if you recall, to read through the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, no doubt, taught for a longer period of time. And that he probably had more subject matter to each of these points, and Matthew's providing kind of a, a summary. There's a great example of this with, with this idea. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, and it flows right from this, doesn't it? He says, and you can see it just adding to the message. He says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Jesus continues developing the notion of judgment. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Or, or better translated, I never, ever, ever, ever knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You, know, you really can't overstate the gravity of what Jesus is saying to the men and women that are gathered on this hillside. In regards to that day that Jesus references, it is the final judgment. It follows our death. It follows our resurrection. It is the judgment of all. And what is Jesus saying? Again, this would have struck you a little odd as you're standing there in real time. Jesus is telling everyone gathered there, hey, guess what, guys? 
one day you all are going to stand before me on judgment. You will stand before me. Many will say to me, you and me have a destiny. Then I will say to them, amazingly, Jesus is telling his audience that their eternal destiny will be determined one day by him. (laughs) If you're not God, what audacity, right? Now, within the verses here that we read, Jesus makes a very few fascinating connections. Just kind of follow me. I've got a point I want to make. He says of the person who will enter the kingdom of God, look, that he does the will of my Father in heaven. Point one. Then, as an example of those who say, Lord, Lord, but end up being refused entry, Jesus, what does he do? He lists out a, a myriad of works that they point to doing in his name. He says, you know, he who does the will of my Father in heaven, and then he lists out a bunch of works, things people do, that don't actually get them to heaven. We prophesied. We cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders. And then lastly, Jesus explains that none of those things really matter. Why? Because they didn't know him. Now think about that. If salvation demands, according to Jesus, doing the will of his Father, he said that. But these particular works in Jesus' name don't count. You have to ask yourself, what then is the will of God that I must do if I'm to enter heaven? The answer? You get to know Jesus. You have a personal relationship with Jesus. Like, friend, don't be mistaken. You can disagree with me, and one day you'll be proven wrong. But your access to heaven is not something, according to Jesus in this passage, it's not something that you can earn by doing good works. Nor is it something that you can earn by living in a pious way. Furthermore, according to Jesus, and I I think this is amazing, but your salvation is also not based on a verbal confession. Notice Jesus says, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. A magic bean prayer is not getting you up the magic beanstalk to heaven. Coming down the aisle 30 times, it doesn't work. It's a connection. The only requirement, the only criteria, it's not what you do that doesn't get you to heaven. It's not what you say that doesn't get you to heaven. It's who you know that gets you to heaven. In the end, it's a relationship with Jesus. That's the only thing that matters. It's the only requirement for entry. The worst sound that any human being will ever hear in their life will be the words coming from the lips of Jesus, depart, for I never knew you. But I did all these things. I didn't, I just wanted you to get to know me, man. But I did this and I did that. Yeah, but that wasn't the requirement. But I said this and I said that, but but I, that wasn't, it was just simple. There's a narrow gate, and that's me. Now, building on the importance of this relationship, within the context of salvation and judgment, Jesus concludes not just the thought, but the sermon. Look at verse 24. Therefore, (laughs) the stakes are high. Therefore, 
Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. So this is the person who has heard his word and is now living their life according to what they've heard. Jesus says, I will liken him. This is what he looks like. He's a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But anyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. This is the person who hears God's word and doesn't live according to what they know to be true. Jesus likens this person to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was its fall. In this parable, Jesus, he's presenting two homes. And he's, and he's using this kind of as, as an allegory to illustrate two different lives that end up experiencing an identical storm. Jesus kind of goes through painstaking efforts uh, with repetition. Same storm. Two homes, two lives, two, one storm. There's nothing, according to the text, to differentiate the two houses themselves. So imagine two identical houses. They look the same. And yet, again, the wind, uh, the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on the house. And as a result, this, this storm reveals a significant difference that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. The structure, or the life that ends up being ruined by the storm, was ruined, why? Well, it had been constructed by a foolish man. We know he's a fool because he built the house on sand. This word sand, you know, in, in your mind you might, you might imagine that he built his house on a beach. And you're like, well, that's stupid everyone would know that that's a dumb decision. It's not what the word means. Sand, it's more applicable to sandy ground. Like the idea is that he built his house on the ground. Like it wasn't that he, he picked the wrong foundation. He was a fool and that he built his life with no foundation at all. He just built his house on top of the soil. Now in contrast, the the other structure, the life that endures the storm. Because it was constructed by a wise man on rock. Again, the contrast, unlike the fool, the man, he didn't build his house on a boulder, which would be equally stupid. It'd blow right off. Instead, what Jesus is describing is someone that took the time to dig below the sandy ground. He didn't build a house on the surface of the ground. He dug down to some bedrock. Something solid that he could put footers upon which he then constructed the home. Again, on the surface, they look the same. One has a footer, the other doesn't. One a foundation, the other lacks. If you study the book of Proverbs, and I encourage you to, a lot of good wisdom there. But you will understand, again, if you, if you were to kind of boil Proverbs down to any central theme, it's a comparison that is made throughout the book itself between two people the foolish man and the wise man. So Jesus is playing on this, this language knowing his audience would already be familiar with it. And throughout the Proverbs, a, a wise man, you know, wisdom. You know, wisdom is, is, not, is not having greater knowledge or greater information. It's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more appropriate application of what I know. A fool doesn't, doesn't have less knowledge or less information. He just fails to act on what he knows. And this is a consistent idea through the Proverbs. They both know the same thing, 
The only thing that differentiates a fool and the wise man is that the fool knows the truth and doesn't, doesn't do anything about it. And the wise man knows the truth, but he acts. Again, why Jesus would encourage us within the Scriptures not just to be hearers of the Word, but doers. Living these things out. A wise man acts on what he knows. Now, it's not an accident here that Jesus is closing out the Sermon on the Mount with this particular story. You see, after telling these folks about the kingdom of God and profiling the citizens of that kingdom, Jesus leaves the audience with an obvious challenge, doesn't he? You've been listening. You've been hearing. But whether or not at this point moving forward you are a wise man or a fool, Jesus is telling the crowd is determined on what comes next. You see, the only life that endures the storm that we will all face is one that's wisely built upon a foundation. The rock. The truth of God's word. Jesus would again say in John, he would say, you know the, the cornerstone that the builders rejected? I am he. I am the rock that is higher than I. Matthew, he closes the chapter, giving us kind of the reaction of everyone that, that was there. Verse 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. The, the word astonished, it's an interesting word. It means to expel by a blow. A more accurate illustration would be like to have the wind knocked out of you. Like these, the, the people, they were they're not just astonished. They were not just amazed. They were not just shocked. They were flabbergasted. I mean, it was like the wind got knocked out of their gut. Why? Well, we're told here that Jesus taught them as one having authority and not the scribes. But you can, again, as we wrap up our time through it, it was the overarching idea. Again, in this culture, the Jews, they took pride on their ability to earn and maintain the favor of God. And Jesus is like, well, you think you're doing that well. You think it's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees that that's the ideal? No, you need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Jesus goes through all of this stuff, and it's one blow after another to the conclusion, I am in trouble. I can't do these things. I might be able to do them once, but I can't do them all of the time. So what do I do? Well, you build a house on a, on a foundation that's sure, that's solid, that's not going anywhere. It's about Jesus. It's about abiding in the vine. It's about a relationship with him. And for these people, that, that all of their identity was tied into their, their religiosity. No doubt what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount took their breath away. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this sermon, our time in it.